Uh, and just by way of introduction, I want to say, last week, previous chapter, we looked at what is one of the more pivotal uh, chapters in this story, uh, chapter 11, where God's name is not mentioned until the last verse. And we watch really like we're watching a train wreck as it's happening in slow motion. As David falls headlong deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. It's kind of a shocking, and last week was admittedly heavy. I I hope you felt that. It's supposed to be heavy. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the Bible does not shy away from the fact that there is no perfect human being. There is no perfect sinless man after God's own heart. David is not given to us to be some perfect man that we need to strive to be like. David does show us things that we need to strive for because he was a man after God's own heart. But David was a man and he showed us that all too well in 2 Samuel chapter 11 as he committed adultery and then murder to cover his own tracks. So we came face to face with grievous and destructive sin and the sin of the man after God's own heart. And we had to deal with the fact that if we're honest, if you take the whole of the story of David, we are the most like David. We are the closest to being like David in chapter 11. Nowhere do we come closer than what the David that we find in chapter 11. So the question I ask you tonight is what would you expect the next chapter to bring? What would, you ignite, what would you expect to be the next thing that happens? Let's uh, look here, the first 15 verses of Second Samuel chapter 12. Let me pray before I read it. Father, we come again to your word this week, and we pray as we always do that this would be your word, that you would speak through it, that you would speak to us, that you would speak into our hearts through the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let me read here God's word for us tonight. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And so Nathan went to his house. This is God's word for us tonight. Yes, we see in this chapter that David meets the consequences of his sin. He does. But if chapter 12 shows us anything, it's that the great sin of chapter 11 is met with the greater grace of chapter 12. And so there's three things I want to see about how grace shines through in these 15 verses. Grace pursues, grace exposes, and grace deals. That's what I want to look at, okay? The first one is grace pursues us even, even in our sin. Grace pursues us even in our sin. We have to feel, y'all have to feel the full weight of verse 1 there. God sent Nathan. I don't even remember, but in chapter 12, 11 times that verb sent is used, and every time it is David. David sent for Bathsheba. David sent for Uriah. David sent for Joab. David sent, David sent, David sent. And then chapter 12 begins, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. I want you to get the full weight of this. And to do this, we got to think about the whole context of David's life and his relationship with God. You look at verses 7 and 8, and God gives us that there. I anointed you, I delivered you, I gave you, I would have given you even more. David's entire life, we've talked about this and we've seen this, David's entire life has been a picture book of God's grace to him. Nothing but God's grace to him. It is very much why Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 is so shocking to us. It's so appalling to us. It's very much why perhaps we aren't ready for chapter 12. Because what do we expect it to say? He's gotten all this grace over and over and over again, and he totally rejects it. And so what do we expect chapter 12 to say? And so God was done with David. God was tired of David. God just threw up his arms with David. Okay, maybe you didn't expect him to say it to David, but usually you expect him to say it to you, do you not? Verse 1, God sent Nathan to David. God didn't leave him. God didn't forsake him. God didn't throw up his arms in exasperation. We read at the, the end of chapter 11 that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In the very next breath we get, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. You see the beauty there. <laughs> we could almost end it right there. God does not leave David. God goes after him. God doesn't leave David to his own devices. We saw what David being left to his own devices did in chapter 11. And God says, I'm not going to leave him there. And so God sent Nathan 
to David. And we said last week about, you know, as we come to David's sin story in chapter 11, that it's not surprising because it's a story that from Genesis chapter 3 has been repeating itself in different variations in the lives of every single person ever, over and over and over again. We get, we get that from the beginning of Scripture, God is holy, God is gracious, God is merciful, especially in His creation, especially in the things that He's made, and especially in making us the crown of that creation in His own image after His likeness. And now, though, because of the fall, we are by nature, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walk by nature, children of wrath. I want you to think back to the Genesis 3 story, if you're familiar with it. If you're not, in Genesis 3, we have Adam and Eve, where everything is fine. Creation is gone. God has created a a helper suitable for Adam. Adam and Eve, now the crowns of God's creation, exercising dominion over it, walking in union and communion with him. But in one moment, they believe the lie of the serpent, that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God specifically forbade them, that they will be like God. And that's what they want. And so they do it. And by their actions, they plunge themselves and their posterity and all of creation into death and decay. And if you think about it, as you're reading the Bible, as you're reading the first three chapters of the Bible, the story should have ended there. It's all screwed up. Adam and Eve have royally screwed it up. It's done. God should just wipe it all away. But he doesn't. You think about it. God gave Adam and Eve everything. He creates them in his image, into his likeness, into union and communion with their maker. He sets them as crowns of this glorious creation. They're to tend the garden, as it were, of the king of the universe. And they throw it all away. All of it. Adam and Eve, by their actions, forfeit All of life and its blessings. And the story should end there because they deserve death and nothing else. But what happens? You remember? We're told that God walks into the garden. Now, Adam and Eve were hiding. But do you think for a second God did not know what had happened? And of his own will, he walks straight back into the garden and calls out to man who is now dead in his trespasses and sins. Man who by his own action has cut himself off from God. And that very God makes the decision to walk straight back into that garden. And he calls out to them. I hope you see the beauty of that. That's grace right there from the beginning. It's what theologians, in Genesis, we get in Genesis 3.15, what theologians refer to as the proto-euangelion. You wanted to know that. Um, the first offer of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I just want to ask you here at the outset, is that the God of your reality? Because that's the God of the Bible. Is that the God of your reality? Is that the God of your experience? Is that the God that you are worshiping? Is that the God you're looking for? This God 
this God of the Bible, of David, after David blatantly and grievously abuses God's grace, instead of leaving David, he pursues him. Instead of rejecting David, which he had every right to do, it's actually the precise moment when he begins to work in him. Is that the God of our reality? How do you know if this is the God you know? How do you know if this is a God you can know, that you want to know? I'll tell you one thing. Your reaction on the other side of your sin will tell you whether you believe this God is real. What do you tell yourself when you come face to face with your own sin? What do you tell yourself? Shame? Guilt? Sure, because that's what sin gives us, right? Sin promises life, but it all it gives us is death and shame and guilt. But what do you tell yourself when you come face to face with your sin? Do you tell yourself that God is done with you? Do you tell yourself that God has really had it with you this time? Have you, do you tell yourself God gave you all those chances? There's no way he will listen to you this time. What do you tell yourself? Or will you let this story tell you the truth? That it's actually at that moment when you come face to face with your own sin, that that's the moment when God is going to work in you. You think about the good news of the kingdom, right? Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom. What is the first word that he said? Repent. The good news of the kingdom is for you to repent. The good news of the kingdom is for you to own up that you don't belong in the kingdom. How does that make sense? Eugene Peterson puts it like this. The moment that we realize our common sin bond with David is the moment we're ready for the real surprise, the gospel story that comes from it. That you may succeed in your unfaithfulness, God. Indeed, you actually will. But God will come after you. Do you believe that that's a, that's a real God? A God that will come after you even when you run away from him? God's grace pursues us, even in our sin. The second one here is grace exposes our sin. That's what happens for David. God's grace here exposes David's sin. God, in his grace, sends Nathan to David. Nathan exposes the depth and the deviousness of David's sin. Therefore, God, in his grace, is exposing David's sin. God in his grace is letting David see what his sin really is. In his grace. And it's been at least nine months after this sin because we know the boy, is the child is alive. We don't know if it's a boy or girl, actually. The child has uh, been born. David's been hiding in his sin. David's been ignoring his sin. David's been sitting in his sin. He's been sitting in his guilt. And Nathan comes to expose what David has been covering. God, by his grace, will not let David continue sitting in his sin. Three ways which Nathan here, God through Nathan, exposes David's sins. Well, the first one is just plain and simple. He exposes the sin. The first step for Nathan, for God through Nathan, is to expose the sin. God isn't being mean. He's not trying to humiliate or shame David. You notice Nathan doesn't go in and sit down with David and say, you are a filthy womanizer and a murderer. That's not what Nathan says. God isn't being mean. God exposes David's sin for David. Because David needs to see that it is sin. 
Because that's what made chapter 11 so appalling, was it not? That he just keeps going and going and going and never once does he stop and say, you know what, this might not be a good thing for me or my kingdom or for this man's family or his life or my army even as he puts his own army in danger to get Uriah killed. That's what makes chapter 11 so appalling. And what's so glaringly appalling to us as we read the story apparently has no sway with David. And how he doesn't see it, we just don't quite understand. And so, God first exposes it for what it is, sin. David, you have scorned and despised me. Because for the worst thing for David, according to God in this chapter, is not necessarily his sin, but that he would remain in it that he would remain comfortable in it, that he wouldn't see it for what it is. So God will ruthlessly expose it lest he settle. Again, think back with me to Genesis chapter 3. You remember, God comes in and Adam and Eve come out from hiding. And you remember God says, why were you hiding? God knew why they were hiding. But Adam, why were you hiding? God knew, God knew that they had sinned, but in the moment he is exposing their sin... For them, for them to deal with it. God, it's like as if God is saying to him, this is why you feel shame. This is why you've attempted to cover your nakedness. This is why you were hiding. Have you ever thought that your sin blowing up in your face might just be God's grace to you? Because he wants you to see it. And not be so blind to it. Because that's the fact we're so often blind to it. And that's the second way God exposes David here. Uh, God exposes the subtlety of sin. Again, it was obvious to us as we read the story. But what was so appalling is that it doesn't seem obvious at all to David. And so Nathan comes and has this crafty story. The rich man that has everything. The poor man that has the little lamb that he loves like a daughter. Um, That's not just a 2000s thing that people treat animals like their child. Um, And as the story builds and builds, you can just see David's face, right? Getting redder and redder. It's so ironic, the religious, righteous indignation that David is welling up within. Because the sin of other people is so obvious to us, is it not? (laughs) The sin of other people is always so clear to us. But we're so blind to our own. You see a problem there, right? Why is it that the sin of others can be so clear to us, but we can often not see anything right in front of us having to do with us? That's why Jesus puts it perfectly in the Sermon on the Mount. Take the log out of your own eye before you deal with the speck in someone else's. Why is it that we can be so blind to sin? We see here, and we know from experience how destructive sin is and how it can be in our lives and the lives of others. But here's the thing. How can we be so blind to it? Because sin doesn't feel like sin when we commit it. Sin doesn't feel like sin when we're doing it. It actually feels godlike. It's the same thing the servant said to Adam and Eve. In, that, in the day that you eat it, you will be like God. It feels godlike. It feels fulfilling. It feels satisfying. It doesn't matter how many times that we've found it or experienced it as the opposite. It still feels like that in the moment. 
What you do with a certain boy or girl before you get married may be a very important thing to you now, something that you're very, very steadfastly trying to, to hold on to or commit yourself to. But what happens after college? What happens when you're still single then, when there's actually not as many people in the pool as there is now here at college? And you finally do find someone, and you are dating, and you do really love each other. <laughs> I mean, we're going to get married. I mean, we're just sleeping together. Nothing else is happening. Keep telling yourself that. Integrity in your schoolwork and what you do. It may be a big deal to you now. You want to do it the right way. But what about the, when the time comes, when the big quarter for your company comes, and it all depends on you? People's salaries are at stake. People's families are at stake here. What is it really going to hurt to change a number here or there, it'll actually help. What are you going to tell yourself? Eugene Peterson, again, David didn't feel like a sinner when he, when he sent for Bathsheba. He felt like a lover. We all want to feel like that, do we not? David didn't feel like a sinner or a scoundrel when he sent for Uriah or when he sent him back with his own death warrant in his hand. He felt like a king who could do whatever he wanted. The subtlety of sin means that we can be totally blind to it, no matter how destructive it is. Which is the third way that sin is exposed for David here. Because God exposes the destruction of sin for David. Nathan's story that he tells and David's reality that we read here show forth this truth. Sin is destructive. It tears things apart. It is the very nature of sin to bring about death in all its shapes and forms. And there we get the consequences for David's sin, because David has not only committed iniquity, he has destroyed persons. David hasn't just broken rules, he has despised God. And so he gets the consequences. The sword is never going to leave his house. We're going to see this next week with his own son rising up in rebellion against him. His wives will be taken and slept with, and the child will die. And we read that and we think, man, that, that is some true Old Testament God stuff right there. That's harsh. But again, go back with me to Genesis 3. We get Adam and Eve's sin. We get God confronting and exposing their sin. And then we get the curses, you remember, right? Eve, will, the women, woman, will now have pain in childbearing, a desire for her husband, and her husband will now rule over her. Adam curses the ground because of him. In pain, he shall now eat of it and work it. And he will return to the ground at the end of his life because from the ground he came, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And we look at that and we say, this seems hard. But remember Genesis 3.15, at the very outset of the curses, to the serpent he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Meaning what? I will put enmity there. I will put strife there. I'm going to put a barrier between you and the woman, meaning I am not going to let her follow you. Grace. I will not let them go headlong after you, after destruction and into death. 
And so God pronounces curses on that which he's made because of sin, because he wants his people to see how destructive sin is. Those of you who have been victims or seen sin work in families, in marriages, in relationships. We don't have to look very far outside these doors or just on your phone to see the destruction that sin causes, do we not? God wants us to feel the weight of that because he wants us to know how destructive it is, what it really does to us. But he also wants us to see how loving and life-giving he is. How do we see that? This is the final thing. Grace Grace pursues us. Grace exposes our sin. And grace deals with us. And grace deals with our sin. Verse 6 Um, it's the, no, not verse six, verse seven, verse seven is the drop the mic moment, right? And it pierces David to the core. David, you are the man. You are the man. That's the gospel from Nathan. The gospel from Nathan is the moment he tells David, David, you are the man. You're the one. That has done this. The gospel, you see, this is Eugene Peterson again. The gospel, you see, is not about somebody else. The gospel is not truth in general, but truth specific. The gospel is not commentary on ideas or on culture, on our circumstances. The gospel is about actual persons, actual pain, actual trouble, and actual sin. And it's about yours. (laughs) You. That is why the good news of the kingdom begins, repent. Because you cannot come into this kingdom. You're not worthy. And that seems like bad news, but somehow it's good. And David gives us a clue here, verse 13. David gets it. David gets it and he says, he just looks at Nathan and he says, I've sinned. I've sinned. Now, be honest. We read that and we say, that's it? <laughs> I've sinned? That's it? Because what do we want? Be honest. What we want is we want him on his knees. We want him crawling through the dust. We want him wallowing. We want him pleading. We want him begging. We want him agonizing. I mean, he wrote Psalm 51, but come on, that's it? Okay, maybe you don't think that about David, but let's be honest. You don't think that that's enough for you. You think I have sinned cannot be the answer. (laughs) That can't be it. But as it comes to us in this passage, it is it. And what if that's the point? What if the brevity of David's confession, David's repentance is the point? What if... It's not about the intensity of his repentance. It's not about the miles that he has to crawl on bended knee. I have sinned against the Lord. You see, that statement is the only right statement to the person whose sin has been exposed before this God. I've sinned. It's real. It's me. Because it's the truth. And that's enough. Y'all, David's sin was enormous, and David's sin was damaging. We're going to look at the rest of the story the next few weeks. It keeps coming up. It keeps dealing problems in his life, in the life of his family, in the life of his kingdom. 
But look at the end of verse 13. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says back to him, and the Lord also has put away your son. And you shall not die. Remember, David looks at the man in the story and says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, David, you're the man. But then God says, I've put your sin away from you. And you will not die. David's sin was enormous and egregious, and there's no minimizing it. There's no wiping it away, but it is wildly outdone by the grace of God. It's no match for the grace of God. Brian Sorgenfry said it like this. Removal of David's sin had nothing to do with David's character and everything to do with the character of God. That's it. What is that character of God? But that he stands ready and willing and intentional about saving sinners like David and like you and me. But again, we think that just seems too easy. That cannot be it. And I don't know what you think of when you hear the word repent. The first thing that may very well come to your mind might be a poster board that says God hates fags. I think a lot of people probably think of that when they hear the word repent. It may be a picture of protesters in an abortion clinic or something like that. Or the doomsday guy that walks around at the fair. I don't know. Maybe you think of hell. Maybe it scares you. Maybe it makes you think, man, I have not repented enough. Maybe I don't, I've never, and I never will. What did it cost David for the penalty of his sin to be removed? In reality, nothing. (laughs) Except to let truth be truth. And it was already true. To let truth be truth and to give it to God. There's no sense here that David is cast into self-pity or self-hatred or depression. No, what he gets is actually news of unthinkable joy. Your sin has been removed from you. It's been removed. It's not there. Why does it seem so easy? How can it be true that it costs us nothing? And you see what the beautiful part of the story in the gospel is. This week, Holy Week, it's story, right? Why and how can it cost us nothing? Because it cost God everything. And he knew that that was going to be the case. Again, Eugene Peterson. This is the story of David's passion, right? And there are eerie parallels to another passion, the passion of Jesus, which we celebrate this week and this weekend. The parallels between David standing before Nathan, Jesus standing before Pilate. They're both passion stories. David's passion for Bathsheba. Jesus' passion for us. Nathan says to David, David, you are the man. And in that moment, that sentence handed down to David brings him to the brink of God, to the presence of God, where his only option is to be exposed for the sinner that he is and to realize it. Pilate says of Jesus, not you are the man, but behold the man. And in that moment, Jesus is brought to the brink of who we are. He's made the sinner where we should have been. 
And where David merited nothing but a guilty verdict, David walks away freely. And where Jesus um, merited nothing but absolute righteousness, of his own will, walks to a cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the World War II martyr and pastor from Germany, he says this, he said, The cross is God's truth about us. And therefore, it is the only power which can make us truthful. Get that. The cross is God's truth about us. Therefore, it is the only power which can make us truthful. The cross is the truth about us. What? That you are so sinful that the only hope you have is if the Son of God himself would give his life for you. That's the truth of the cross. The truth of the cross is that Jesus hangs where each and every single one of us deserves to for eternity. And in that, Bonhoeffer says, is the only power for us to be truthful. Remember, again, the good news of the kingdom was to repent. The good news of the kingdom was to confess, I am not worthy of a kingdom of this God. It's the good news. So the question for all of us tonight is this. And this weekend, I hope you take it with you if you go worship. And I encourage you to do so. What are you going to do with your sin? If you hear anything from the story, hear about this. If we're really going to deal with this God... Do you see that the point is that the truthfulness is seeing who you are, but the truthfulness is even though that seeing who you are shows you how far away you actually are from that God, that the truth is is that you should actually take that and run to Him. And not only should you take it and run to Him, but He has given you the means to do so. Do you believe, I dare you to believe, the impossibly true good news tonight? That the place of sin for the Christian is not a place of accusation and condemnation. Because he already bore both of those on your behalf. So instead of the place of sin, which is all of our lives, being a place of accusation and condemnation, what does it become? It becomes the place of salvation. How could that be true? It's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are all stuck. We're all dealing with the weight of the condemnation of knowing that we are the man. Father, would you open our ears and our hearts to hear the good news tonight? that you've removed it from us and that you put it on Jesus and that there's nothing left to atone for because he already did. Would you make that real to us tonight? Would we be able to believe it tonight? And in believing it, would we be able to be truthful about who we are? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.